the weekend and plenty going on on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. And this was one, I think, that it went deep. This one went deep. Um, you know, they're not real Irish. They're wannabes. They're wannabes. And they wouldn't get our Irish humour. And there are plenty of boats and planes that they can get on and go back to Africa. And I, and I felt this kind of magic in Ireland that, that wasn't in the UK. It wasn't there when I went back home. And, and when I came here in the 80s, first to play concerts and, and then to live, I, I found that magic again. Well, I'm married to the mother of Buddy the Elf. So Jane Bradbury, Ireland's own, happens to be my spouse. She's the one in the photograph of Buddy the Elf when he comes looking for his dad. And we'll start on today with Claire Byrne. Presenter and activist Emer O'Neill was talking to Claire about a joke that Tommy Tiernan told at a gig, why she walked out of that gig and the apology she received. Emer O'Neill, presenter and activist, got an email apology from Tommy Tiernan this week, followed up by a phone call. Now, two weeks ago, Emer was at a gig in Vicar Street and Tommy told a joke that began with a trip to the zoo and ended with a punchline about taxi drivers. And Emer O'Neill, as a black woman, felt that joke was overtly racist and she left the venue. And Emer is here. Good morning to you, Emer. Good morning, Claire. Thanks does, for having does that me. describe what happened? Yeah. Yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. Um, I have since learned that I wasn't the only person that was offended by it. So um, it's actually, it was yesterday was the first that I heard from somebody that was actually at the gig as well with a number of friends and they said they saw me leave um, and they were absolutely disgusted. Mm -hmm. Can you go back? Because I just want to know what that feels like to be in a room where you feel I I have to stand up here and leave. Um... Yeah, and there was also that part of me that's like, Emer, you're an activist for anti-racism. Why aren't you saying something? You know, even with the very first comment of I'm standing here in front of a room of white faces. Um, why didn't you stand up and say, well, I'm not white. I'm, I'm, I'm white and black. Um, but I, I couldn't. And I, I felt... I felt like a fraud nearly because I do workshops, I go to schools, I talk to kids, I, I tell them stand up for what you know is right and do it in safe ways. But, you know, silence is compliance, you know. Um, but in that moment, I just, I, I kind of froze, I think. And um, after the joke was told and everybody was laughing and he said, you know, uh, well, it obviously wasn't racist because you're all laughing. Um, my friend, I just felt her hand on my back. She just started rubbing my back. Um, the people to my left, um, I could hear one of them say, oh, she didn't find that funny. There were a few people in the crowd that were kind of looking at me because you're going to do that. You're going to be like, OK, well, we all thought it was funny, but what does the one black person in the room think of it, you know? Mm. Um, and then my other friend just said, we're leaving. And I said, I'm, I'm not I'm not leaving right now. And they were like, we're leaving. Like, we're not staying after that. And I just said, just just give it a minute until he moves on to other things. And it's not as obvious why I'm standing up, because the last thing I want is to stand up and be heckled. Like, there goes my taxi driver, you know, or, oh, no, another snowflake offended, um, you know. So for others, you know, that don't have lived experience of what it's like to encounter things like that, pretty much in every, any social gathering you go to. Um, 
they had forgotten about the joke when he'd moved on to the next or the next, you yeah. know, so I felt safe to stand up and leave um, and I didn't want it to be a big, a big scene, you know. And, and then you did go public with it and, yeah. and what happened and yeah. how you, you After felt. beating myself up for a while in terms of why didn't you say something and you, you know, it was cowardly of you, you know, you should have addressed it right there and then, but I'm human at the end of the day. Um and um, yeah, so I, I went public with it. I thought it was an important thing to talk about. And um, Tommy has a massive following, um, you know, and I just in this day and age, I just I just can't believe that, you know, that kind of a joke is something that could be in any way acceptable. Mm. And um, tell me about the response that you got after you went public. So on my on my Instagram, on my page where I posted what happened, um, very positive things. Um, because the people who follow me are allies, they're friends, um, they're people who are on their journey to allyship, they're doing the work to understand what it is like to be from a minority community, an ethnic minority community. Um, But in terms of other places, so let's say uh, under newspaper articles um, and on Facebook, um, the commentary there was horrific, Claire, like, I can't even, it was an absolute disgrace. And it turned from a, a singular attack against me in terms of why is she pulling the race card? Um, you know, uh, she's a wannabe. Uh, she's trying to get five minutes of fame. Tried her hand at presenting was crap. And this is her way to get uh, her name back out there. Um, so these were personal attacks, but it, it changed from that rhetoric to... You know, and this was one, I think, that it went deep. This one went deep. Um, You know, they're not real Irish. They're wannabes. They're wannabes. And they wouldn't get our Irish humour. And there are plenty of boats and planes that they can get on and go back to Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, now now we know why you hesitated to stand up and walk out. Exactly, exactly. It says it all. And Emer spoke about Tommy Tiernan's response. Tommy reached out to me. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. So I got the email um, and like just to put it shortly, you know, he apologised for the hurt that was caused. Um, He expressed that I was right to take a stand and call him out um, and that it was offensive and that he would do his level best going forward to ensure that he would, that nothing like this would happen again. And I did, I mean, it's it's an email, so you try your best to get, you know, you're not talking to somebody, but I felt like it was genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he said, if you'd like to talk on the phone, you know, send me your number. So I thanked him for the, his words. I sent him my number. I said I would welcome a call. And he rang me that day and we, we chatted for nearly an hour. And um, it was a very positive conversation as far as I'm concerned. He did a lot of talking. He expressed things to me that I just felt were so powerful. Um, One of the things he said to me was that um, as a middle-aged white man, he did not have the right to decide what was and wasn't offensive to an ethnic minority group considering he has no lived experience as one. And I just kind of thought, wow, um, because it was clear that he had done he had done some reflection. He really did. Did he say to you that it took you walking out and going public to come to that realisation? He didn't say that, but he, he, he said that it wasn't until this moment in time that I actually understood that 
as a white person, I don't actually have any say in what's offensive to you. It is, it, and he said, it took until this moment in time that I actually understand that. Um, and I and I told him, you know, you know what that meant. That it was huge, and it takes people a long time to get there. Um, I don't know why we as humans are so hesitant to allow the concept that there's racism, you know, everywhere we look. Um, but I do believe that once you allow yourself to see it, you can never unsee it again and you'll see it everywhere. You'll see the discrimination, the lack of representation. Um, and it's just, it's like putting the shoe on the other foot and putting yourself into someone else's position for a moment and just imagining what that is is like. And I think that helps people to really understand you know, how difficult it must be for ethnic minority people because your skin colour is not something you can hide. The minute you walk into a room, you're walking down the street, you're going in for a job, no matter what it may be, it's the first thing people see about you and their unconscious bias, it's the first thing that they judge you on also. Um, One of the things I did say to Tommy was this realisation and the reflection that you've done here and the things that you have said to me are so powerful for you to make a public statement to that effect would 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 really change the mindset of so many here your followers the people of Ireland it will also allow our allies and people from our community to to say to themselves you know what standing up for what is right is is okay and and even if it's not the popular most popular opinion it it doesn't make it not right you know to and give what, them that courage so you suggested that he might consider doing that what did he say um he expressed that he had taken the joke immediately from his set and that he wrote me the email and also rang me um so you 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 don't think he's considering making a public statement about it. I have a statement from his team here now, which I'll bring you in just a minute because we asked him to, to come on the programme. But you want him to to take a public stand on this. That's yeah, what it's not even that I want it. I just believe like, because it, it was so genuine in our conversation and I really, really felt like, you know, there's some change that's happened here mm-hmm. and it's amazing and the effects that it could have on our country could be so huge. For some reason, the voice of a white person, a white Irish person is so much stronger than it is coming from someone from an ethnic minority group. Um, mm. But Actually, I'm just going to go to the statement because okay. it... it it tangentially addresses what you've asked him to do because okay. it says on Friday the 6th of January Tommy told a joke on stage as part of his stand-up routine. As soon as he received a complaint he spoke to that audience member in order to understand where he went wrong. He immediately removed the joke from the set and apologised both personally by phone and email and publicly by addressing it on stage the following night and every night since reiterating his apology. Tommy does not condone any negative online comments received by this audience member and most definitely not in his defence fence. So what he is saying is by publicly addressing it every night on stage that that is his his public apology. Yeah. Well, I don't know what I mean, what do you what do you think about that? Well, so, I mean, I mean, a public you're, statement. You're, you're the a person who 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 needs this to happen. I mean, yeah. this is what you're saying, that it would yeah. set, because you saw yeah. the understanding, you heard the understanding of what he said to you and on I, the phone. It's actually really great to hear that statement because that's the first I've heard and that's the first public statement I've heard from any of anyone affiliated mm. with him. Um, but but, but, but it's not me that needs it. But what, what you have said to me, Emer, is that the power in what he learned, yes. you heard that in that phone call and you want everyone to hear that. I do. And I believe that it, 
he's apologised to me and I'm very thankful for that, but it is not only me that was affected by this. You understand that people are allies, but especially the people from our ethnic minority community, black and Irish community, had to see this absolutely vile commentary ensue that was directed at our community. So an apology to me is one thing, but when so many other people are affected by this, it's no good to just apologise to me. There is an entire community that have suffered from this. This was traumatic for other people. This was traumatic and triggering for people from our community because they had to read things like, you Africans all need to go back to your own country. We don't want you here. They saw all of the threats. They saw the vile nature and the commentary from their fellow Irishmen. Emer O'Neill from Today with Claire Byrne. Now, one of the best Christmas films of all time is the modern classic Elf. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty actually met Buddy the Elf's mother. But that's for later because film producer Todd Komernicki was talking about working on the set of Sully, Elf, a new movie, Godspy, and how much he really likes Ryan. It's a pleasure to meet you. I've been watching you since 2009. <sighs> Huh? And um, I just realized that that's a, quite a long time. That, that is a long time. Chatting people up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, I want to start this by saying, because I know everybody that's listening already agrees with this, but you are really gifted at what you do. You are remarkably empathetic. And that is a quality that is missing in everybody who talks on television or the radio. Well, because I'm Irish, I will just point out that they're laughing outside. They're this. not they laughing. Are, they're, scoffing they're nodding and they are, and so I, I see, I see, and, and Kieran are, yeah. are nodding no, in full agreement. No, they're putting agreement. their fingers down their throat, actually. I was one of them. Is, uh, actually, they've stormed out. They've stormed out uh, because they think this is a fake news bulletin. Todd, you've been to Ireland so many times, but let's go into the movies and the writing and everything like that because there's loads of places we can go here this morning. Um, I think we'll go with the most recent because you've just wrapped on a movie in Ireland. Talk, 11 talk, o'clock. Tell us all about <laughs> it. What happened? So yes, last night on 11, uh, 11 p.m. on the streets of Limerick with a giant balloon light over the church at Perry Square, we wrapped. I wanted to do snow angels, um, <laughs> but I should have done that in Kinturk where it snowed on our set the previous two days. I'm actually coming in here with the, the dirt of Kinturk on my, on my <laughs> oh, pants, okay. the dried mud of County Clare. Uh, so I carry Ireland with me everywhere I go. <laughs> you do now. After you make a movie... Uh, Oh my goodness, I've been shooting this movie since November. Um, you just run out of clothes. Yeah. So I'm just sticking with these pants till it's I get home. It's a good look. It's, it's, it's rough and ready, but it does the job. Uh, and the film, tell us a little bit about it. It's called God Spy. Yeah. It's a true story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of the very few German heroes of World War II. And he went from being a pacifist pastor to one of the assassins of Hitler. And in the process saved thousands of Jewish lives. He's one of the great figures of the 20th century. There have been, I think, 10 books written about him. His books have sold maybe 30, 35 million copies. And on the Wall of Martyrs outside Westminster Abbey, in between Mahatma Gandhi and MLK Jr., is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. No way. Wow. I I mean, I feel ignorant now because I'm a big big fan of history, but uh, this is a name that passed me by. I I feel like it's a sin of omission on my part. It's interesting. I I don't have a direct line to prove this, but I think it has to do with Germany's relationship with the war. And he deserves a lot of accolades. In fact, every other street in Berlin is Bonhoeffer-Strasse. It's easy to get lost if somebody's connected. (laughs) Bonhoeffer Boulevard, Bonhoeffer Drive. But his, um, his story would take sort of a national pride 
to get it out there. And I think there's a lot of shame associated with uh, World War II for Germany, of course, for obvious reasons. So they're reluctant to say, look, we found one, you know, the good German thing. I think so. I think so. But my cast is primarily German and all of them have been deeply touched by Bonhoeffer. They're taught about Bonhoeffer. And I know in America, he's quite beloved. Uh, He's really beloved in India. Gandhi personally invited him to come study with him and spend time with him in India. And he said no um, graciously, but I need to stay in in Germany and and help with this rising tide of hatred. So he was one of... Hitler's nemesis. Is, uh, yeah. Nemesis is, is that like worse? I was listening earlier. I know the complication. Um, I can pronounce my last name, but uh, nobody can pronounce <laughs> Worcestershire. You're a Nikki, not a Nikki. Nikki. Yeah. And I, I C K I. Gotcha. Actually, you know, we're watching about Ukraine here on, on the TV in the studio and it's a Ukrainian name. I'm actually Komarniki from the village of Komarniki in Western Ukraine. No, have you have you yeah. tracked that down personally in your free time or? Yes, um, my grandfather was Joseph Komarniki from Komarniki. He came uh, when he was a teenager, right before the Russian Revolution, and raised a family in Philadelphia, which is where my dad was born. So, do you, when you see what's happening in Ukraine, do you feel a sort of a blood connection to the story? Of course, the the tracing of the story for us is that. I asked my dad probably when I was eight or nine, where are all our relatives from Ukraine? You know, mom's side, and but there's there's just the people here in Philadelphia. We must have relatives. And he said that during the famine that Stalin starved everyone and over an 18-month period, all the letters from the aunts and uncles back home just slowly trickled to a stop. Oh, that's desperately sad. Yeah. So that resonates very profoundly in this ongoing attack from Russia onto Ukraine. It's so it feels so personal and also so petty. Putin probably means petty in Russian yeah. because such a small man doing so much damage. And studying the World War II history and seeing how Hitler was a small man yeah. surrounded by a growing chorus of sycophants, it's so important to stand up against that kind of tyranny. That's why Zelensky of course, he's a flawed human being, but his fearlessness, like he said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Yeah, yeah. And he's lived that out. And the Ukrainian people have, have borne that out. And you see in, in your country, Ireland's been incredibly accepting and loving towards the Ukrainian refugees, which means so much to me. And we're trying to do the same in, in the States. And Ryan asked Todd about the rise of the right. When we did our first Late Late Show, the TV show uh, on the Ukraine, when the war broke out, among the audience was a young man and he handed me a book during the commercial break and he said I think you need to read this and <clears throat> excuse me it was a book about the famine in Ukraine and Stalin, Stalin's famine you kind of alluded to it and I have not to my shame read that just yet but as we're talking here uh, I'm going to make it my mission to read it because we had of course the Irish famine which caused so many of Irish all those Irish buyers in America probably there for because of sad reasons actually in their yes. genesis if you will um, so that's one thing um, and then you mentioned, you, you know, Cade Milafolci, the, the, the 100,000 welcomes. And yet there's a bit of a, a, a very nascent um, march of uh, unwelcoming behaviour happening now. And we've been wondering a long time as a country, would the right uh, and the far right be, uh, get a foothold here? It hasn't yet, but there's just a, um, there's a spark of it. And that's where the good people have to come in. And that's where the, the like the film that you were making, we, we need good people to do good things um, to stop those little guys getting out of control. We can't abdicate 
it's easy to say when we look back, it's like, well, how did the German people all fall in line? Or, well, they did, they did it by looking at the meal that was in front of them or farming their field or raising their children, but not paying attention to the threat, the global threat, and how it could mean by taking care of their family only, they may put their family in danger. Yes. We, we are part of a, a global world. We need each other. We have to take care of each other. If we haven't gotten better at that while we're alive... All these centuries, if we're still just looking at our neighbor as other, then we're destined to fall apart. I'm bouncing completely because of, because you're my guest this morning and because you're responsible for, so much for the movie Sully, which I watched last night with Tom Hanks. There's a good person, Sully, and Tom Hanks, but uh, who I don't know. But but Sully just had goodness in him, from what I gather. Is that what attracted you to that whole... I mean, apart from the fact that it's an extraordinary story, he lands this plane full to the brim of of citizens uh, in a city that had this very uh, scary relationship with planes falling. Um, as we know, we get to all of this now. And they were still in that jitters phase, I think, um, post 9-11. So talk to me about all of that. The thing I felt when I met Sully, after I'd been hired to do the job, mm. it took about 30 seconds to feel that, yes, this man landed a jet <laughs> really? on the river. <laughs> that, that, that small it, amount it, of time. It, it emanates from him. Really? A certainty, a confidence, a um, he aims really high in everything that he does. So you feel that. Everything's about best practices. He is a sweetheart, but he's also an Air Force guy. So he's a bit of a badass. Okay. But he's not going to let you know. But just you can just see how he holds his shoulders that he can yeah. know, take you. So he wears it lightly. Uh, very, yeah, very yeah. lightly. And I also thought that Clint Eastwood was the perfect person to direct that movie because... There's something very similar between Clint and Sully, and I knew when the script was first sent to Clint, he said, "Why? Why do I have to read it? It had been recommended to him. Everybody knows what happened, and the I think the power of that movie lies in the fact that nobody knew what actually happened, and the post-crash survival for Sully was almost more difficult than the landing of the plane on the river. The trauma, the flashbacks, the fame." All of these things. All of those things. And also, we live in an era where we're so connected to technology that we will immediately disbelieve the human over the technological. We just say, well, humans are flawed, but AI, mm -hmm. but this program that, you know, clearly. So even back when that happened 14 years ago, and as you saw in the film, because the computer mm. said the engine was running, then, of course, the engine was running. Mm. Not an experienced pilot, been in the air for 30 years, knew what it was like to have both engines go. And, of course, he was proven right. But they spent I – had, I had four days to compress the movie to. It was 15 months, 15 months of investigation, calling him at all hours, calling him with his co-pilot and without his co-pilot. Harassing him. Yeah, I would say. Mm. And there's no transcripts for any of these calls. Yeah. And they would make him go over it again and again and again. Well, there's a reason that you go after somebody and that's usually money. So um, nobody liked that there was a $60 million airplane that got destroyed. Well, Sort of took their eye off the fact that everybody lived. And we'll come back to this lovely conversation with film producer Todd Komernicki later when Ryan asks him about the film Elf. And on the Ray Darcy show, the great Waterboys frontman, Mike Scott. I've been doing a daily radio show for 23 years, Mike Scott, and your name has been mentioned, I'd say, you know, 
not hundreds of times, but definitely 50 times. Will you do an interview in my Scotland? Yes, yes, yes. It never happens. This is the first time. Yeah. I've, yeah. So it's great to see you. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great to finally get here. <laughs> yeah. So, so if I ask you questions about way back, you'll excuse me, will you? Oh, I don't mind. You at don't all. mind at all. Oh, you don't I'm mind to talk about anything you like. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, yeah. brilliant. So uh, you were introduced. Um, your relationship with Ireland predated the Waterboys. It was because of your mum. She brought me here on a, on a summer holiday in 1970. I was minus. 22 years old and we, we stayed a week in Kinsale I remember swimming in the uh, uh, no that was in Sligo the outdoor pool was in Sligo and then we had a week in Sligo and, and my mum was going to the Yates summer school every day and apparently she took me to some of the lectures I, I heard Seamus Heaney speak apparently but, but at that age I didn't remember yeah but it obviously by some sort of osmosis Got into your brain. Yeah, well, I, I grew up learning to respect Yeats. He was spoken about in hushed tones in our house. Yeah, and then in 2010, you did the whole Yeats thing. That's right, Abbey. an yeah. appointment with Mr Yeats, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so was this always going to be that you'd have this relationship with our country? Or <clears throat> Well, I, I did love Ireland when I came here as a kid. I loved it very much. And, and I felt this kind of magic in Ireland that, that wasn't in the UK, wasn't there when I went back home. And, and when I came here in the 80s, first to play concerts and and then to live, I, I found that magic again. I'm very happy here, very comfortable here. Yeah. So it was around 1986 that you moved over full-time? Uh, yes, indeed. Do you know, I, I arrived the day Philo checked out. Oh, did you? The 4th of January, 1986. And Steve Wickham met me at Dublin Airport. And on the, on, in, on the taxi ride into Dublin... Phil was on the radio, they were playing his songs and announcing that he'd died. Had you ever met him? I I encountered him once, backstage in 1978 at the Rainbow Theatre. It was after a Patti Smith gig. I was 19, somehow I'd blagged my way in, uh, and and I, I, I was looking around backstage. I, I, I was actually a guest of Patti Smith, and, and I, I stumbled upon the backstage bar. And when I walked in, this bloke, he was, looked about seven feet tall in a powder blue suit, walked up to me, and it was Philo. And, and I'm telling you, to this day, he's the most charismatic man I ever saw. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the documentary. No. Uh, a lady called Ema Reynolds made mm. it, a very talented director. Uh, feature length, it was mm. at least about two years ago. Well worth seeing. Oh, I'll check that yeah, out. Because yeah. the, the footage of him when he was a kid around Dublin and... Okay. Yeah, the, the brilliant footage there. Has anybody ever done a full <coughs> interview on a bang on the ear? You know, Lindsay was my first love. She was in my class. Yeah. And, and, then <laughs> and all that, yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> no, I, don't, get, don't get asked about that one so often these yeah, days. No. No. Why not? No, it's just because it's nine minutes long and it's autobiographical. Yeah, and it's, yeah. yeah, and there are plenty of verses I left out as well. Is there? <laughs> <laughs> bold thing. Do yeah. you know, Lindsay was my first love and all that. She was the girl in my class at school in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, and she left the school when we were about 14 or 15. And, and you see, the thing, the problem was, as I wrote in the song, I never did have the courage to ask her out. And then she left, her family moved to another town. And decades later, I found her online and got in touch with her and I said you know I, I, I became a musician and I, I put you in this song and she said oh my god I've got that album <laughs> I, I she didn't, didn't realise her because yeah. you were invisible to her in a way were you? well, well I, was... as I discovered yes apparently <laughs> I was, was yeah. I'm, I'm still getting over that were you a shy young fella I, I didn't really figure out how to talk to girls until I was a bit older right yeah and what about the performing did that give you confidence then because if you were a guest of Patti Smith at the age of 19, you must uh, have had something. Oh, well, I had a bit, a bit of... 
I had a bit of juice about me by then, yeah. yeah. And it was the punk rock days, and it, you know the barriers between performers and, and fans were broken down. And, and and when when I was living in Edinburgh in the late seventies, we just used to go to gigs and at the sound check, and we were here to see the band, and they would let you in, and you could interview them for the fanzine and so on. And I did much the same with Patty Smith, except she was playing a show in London, uh, and I phoned up her hotel cheekily on the chance that they put me through and they did and she answered the phone and spoke to me and when she heard I was calling from Scotland she quickly computed how far away that was she told me to come get a train and come to the show and I did and she I turned up at her hotel she got me a hotel room delegated one of the band to, to look after me it was brilliant and Ray asked Mike about making his archive available online well, when you get to my age, there's a lot of archive material to play with. And with lockdown, there was a lot of time to work at my home studio and develop re-releases and archival albums and so on. And you're putting together a book of photographs. Uh, it's actually a, a book of text with photographs yes. about the making of the album This Is The Sea. Yes. And we're doing a box set, a six CD box set of all the music in the build-up to This Is The Sea and then the the period of making This Is The Sea and I've been assembling that for about the last year and writing the book. It's been very good fun. So that's 1985 that was released? Yes, yes. indeed. Um, and, and This The Sea the title track, Brilliant, and Hole of the Moon and Spirit, my favourite yeah. from it, is okay. amazing as well. You're, you're still recording, you did an album out in 2022 Yeah. and the, the, the performing, so your Ivy Gardens uh, one sold out, probably a second one sold out. We hope so. What do you still get from it? Oh, I just love going out on stage. Absolutely love it. Love playing music. Love playing with my band. Love seeing what's going to happen next. So, Hold the Moon is is, is your best known song. It is, yeah. Yeah. I, I, we had Lenny Henry in before Christmas, and we were talking to him about him doing backing vocals on a Kate Bush song. Yes. Yes, and 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 then he offered up a story about you. Oh, we we met in a tailor shop. Did you he did. Tell you that? That's it. Here, we, you yeah. want his version first? <clears throat> okay. I'll give you his version first. Here we go. I went to buy a shirt in London from this great. If you get a chance, go. It's called John Pierce, <laughs> and he makes beautiful shirts. And Mike Scott was there, and um, I looked at him and I went, "Too high, too low, or whatever it is." <laughs> yeah. The whole and, of the moon. The whole of the moon. <laughs> yeah. Not the half. Not the half. But the whole. And I said to him, "Oh man, that is a killer song." Congratulations. I've got Fisherman's Blues, but the whole of the moon, it's literally like an epic, but on a record, isn't it? It's like this epic song cycle. It's beautifully sung, beautifully played. And he said, well, thank you. He says, and by the way, your version of Why Should I Love You is much better than ours uh, because they've done a version of Why Should I Love You. And I, I went, well, God, thank you very much. He was so kind and so generous. He's not remembering it quite the same as me. What okay. I said to him wasn't that I didn't say that that Kate Bush's version was better than ours, but I said that I really liked his backing vocal. Oh, that's what you're Why Should I Love You? His yeah. voice is so loving and kind on that song, yeah. and I've always appreciated it. I bought that album when it came out 30 years ago, so it was very nice to be able to, to compliment him in person. And you have the same taste in shirts. Well, he was buying a louder shirt than I would have sported, it must be said. Mike Scott from The Ray Darcy Show. And on the live line in the afternoon, Irish butter, you can't get better. Do you fancy going in and getting a half pound of Shannon Gold Buttercup or Tub of Gold? Or indeed Leprechaun Butter? Apparently they were in the original mix uh, for the names of Kerrygold, which is now uh, one of our biggest exports, 160 countries around the world. 
um, and there's apparently a shortage of it, uh, a controversy in the United States of America at the minute, because those New Zealanders have launched a butter in um, America and the cheek of them, they're calling it West Gold, not Kerry Gold. And remember, Kerry Gold, the word gold obviously means butter in this case, but uh, the New Zealand dairies are, are introducing uh, a butter called West Gold and there is a battle going on and apparently there's a battle royal in the States because Kerry Gold is really... Um, really take it, taken off. Okay, let me go. I, I mentioned this earlier. Richie Cloak in Spain. Richie, are you a, are you a Kerry Gold uh, aficionado? Aficionado or addict. I don't know addict, what you call okay. it. No, you wouldn't say addict. I like Kerry Gold. The one with salt especially. And can you get it in Spain? I can get it not easily, but there's a supermarket called Amateur or Amelier and they do sell it for three fifty-five for two hundred grams, which is about point four four of a pound, less than half a pound for three fifty-five. I don't know. Are they doing me? Is that a bit overpriced? But it is because here, I can get it. here, Kerrygold butter, the four five four gram, is four euro twenty-nine cent. Oh, yeah. So that's a bit steep here. So, so you're paying if you're working out, you're paying about uh, a cent and a half per gram. Whereas here, it's kind of getting off the screen, unfortunately, the prices. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the import costs and whatever they have to do to, to import it. And well, here you're paying less than a centigram, so to speak. Yeah. What, okay. what do you love about Kerrygold? Why has America gone well, mad about Kerrygold? Uh, there is an alternative, but I'd have to travel to a further away supermarket. I can get butter with salt in a place called Mercadona, which is fairly okay. Maybe it's a kind of a loyalty to being Irish or something, but I do like to carry gold on the on the spuds or on butter with marmalade. <laughs> and did you know it's premium price in the States as well? It's oh, premium, what does that mean, it's, premium it's, price. It's even more expensive in the States. And didn't didn't Donald Trump put a put a levy on it when he got involved in one of his daily wars, I think it was a trade war one day he got involved in with Europe. What do you like it on oh, best? Yeah. Butter, spuds, uh, biscuits, uh, digestive biscuits, spuds, Brussels sprouts. Oh, no. Oh, that's, you're reminding me now, yeah, I used to put it on Marietta biscuits. But oh, yeah. That's a bit too much for the old cholesterol, maybe. And you no, remember, I'm, I'm, remember you pressed a Marietta biscuit to get a Marietta biscuit sandwich, and then the butter, the Kerrygold, would come up like worms coming out of the ground. <laughs> you and you'd lick them off, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Or the butter drips out of your toast. Yeah, onto the table. Yeah, no, on potatoes with a bit of salt and, and pepper and on bread. With, okay, now, what do you think of the cheek of the New Zealanders calling their butter in the United States West Gold? Oh, yeah, I, did, I didn't see anything see, about that. Uh, the poor New Zealanders are losing a good Prime Minister, I think, so that's true. we'll have well, sympathy for them. Yeah, but there's no need to take it out on us. Well, that's Richie in Spain. Then Erica and Galway talked to Joe about her connections to Kerry Gold. I was one of the people chosen to launch Kerry Gold in London in the 60s. Ah. There was four of us travelled with uh, Tony O'Reilly to London. We went for a couple of years on the trot there. And tell us, the great Tony O'Reilly, tell us, how, how did you get involved in this, Erica? Um, I joined an agency because um, of a company in Strike at the time, and I got lots of lovely jobs out of it. Her name was Violet Collins Agency. Oh, so you were a model? No, I wasn't a model, no. What what were you then? (laughs) 
I could promote. I could. I was a good sales lady. Oh, well done. Okay, so you went to London. Now so we went to London, and, and um, we were put up in lovely hotels near Harrods, and okay. um, we were very well looked after. There was a Mr. Joe McGough went with oh, us. Oh, yeah, well. legendary as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Legendary. Now, um, Kerry, according to Kerry Gold says, or Arnua, uh, people, people think Kerry Gold is made in Kerry. It's not. It's made all over the country. It's made in about 15 different co-ops. And it's sold under the same brand, i.e. Kerry Gold. And the Kerry Gold brand is owned by an umbrella group called Arnua. So um, um, various other um, name, almost every co-op in the country, every creamery we know of. I know... Did Glambia change its name to Tier Lawn or something? Some awful name, Tier Lawn. Um, so I get, I get confused to change the name so often. But they all they all make Kerrygold's kind of under licence from, but I presume they hold ingredients like gr- milk from grass-fed uh, cows. And at that at that time, now according to Kerrygold themselves, Erica, they launched on the 8th of October 1962. Would that ring a bell? Um, That's 60 years no. ago. It was later in the sixties okay. that I went. Okay, yes. and then they, the, then they went into the American market. And yes. what, what did you have to do with Tony O'Reilly? Well, we had to sell. We had to sell ourselves first before you sell anything. Okay. You know, and we were at big um, exhibitions in London. Selling and you, it, and, and you had it, a whole Kerrygold brand and branding and oh we had we had a cherry gold uniform everything yes and we given out free samples yes yes and okay. i have met people a lot of people now all around the world and the minute you say you're irish they all talk about cherry gold yeah you see that's it it's incredible isn't it yeah it yeah and there was always a lot of opposition from new zealand even back in the 60s yeah why don't we take them on why don't are they a big navy is their navy bigger than ours why do you know? That's I don't know so big as then. We, we, we beat them at all the shows anyway. That I yeah, do we know. Beat them. We beat them at rugby every now and again. Of course we yes. beat them at all the mm. shows. It's the best tasting butter in the world. Yes. Well, that's Erica. Then Maya called Joe. I'm in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Oh, you're in Oklahoma. It says here you're in Dublin. Yeah. You're in the, so Maya Jackson in Oklahoma. What Do you like Kerrygold? I love it now. It's going to be the only butter I use from this point forward. And what do you mean? How did the you best go- stuff I've ever tasted. You've only discovered Kerrygold recently. Yes. Well, I've seen it before, to be honest with you. Okay. Um, I bought some for a friend of mine, but the price was a little pricey for me. Um, I'm on the cheaper scale, and I thought, well, you know, I, I don't want to pay that much for butter. I'll get it for my girlfriend. And when you and say... And I saw... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, so I, I, I want to ask a question because I got caught in this yesterday. My fault to delay. You keep talking, Maya, and I'll, I'll ask a question okay. at the end. Thank you so much. Um, and then I saw on Twitter a girl had posted that she bought some of the butter and it changed her recipe. And I asked her, does it really change it that much? And she said yes. So I ran out to the store to go grab some. They were sold out that day. I finally was able to get some two days later. I made my famous Valentine's crack with it. And I've never tasted, I mean, it took it completely in a different direction. It made it 10 times richer. Um, it completely changed the flavor. And so now people are going to be fighting me for this crack because it's that good. This butter is incredible, and it's the creamiest, most richest stuff I've ever tasted. And I was amazed okay. that a butter could make the difference. But it did. 
all the difference in the world. And uh, Maya, what is the difference between, say, American butter, price-wise for a start, and Kerrygold? Because we know Donald Trump put a, a levy on Kerrygold. You know, <laughs> you know that. <laughs> like our yeah, new um, Kerrygold oh. paid 50 million euro in, in US tariffs. Um, because oh, wow. of because Trump put a tariff on how much it, how, price wise how does it compare? It's much more expensive, is it? Thanks. It's to doubled Trump. probably the price of our reg, like a regular generic oh, brand, but it's like four dollars wow. and fifty cents for two sticks, which is half a pound. Twelve dollars, and that's how much my recipe takes. <laughs> and how much is American butter? About um, I well in America like for the four sticks like in Kerrygold I get two sticks for four dollars and fifty nine cents. Okay. But the regular butter like a non brand name is four sticks for about two seventy nine. Oh my god. Yeah, so, so it's almost double. So how could how could Kerrygold compete with that price? What is American well, butter? What is American butter like? What color is it? Boring compared to Kerrygold. <laughs> what, what what's the color of it? The, the texture and the taste. It's not as creamy, and it's um, not as rich in the color. So I guess the grass that you're yeah. talking about that the cows eat, I guess, and we have lots of cows here in Oklahoma. We have lots of them, but they don't <laughs> – our butter doesn't taste like that. So I don't know. I guess we need your old grass. That's what needs to happen. Maya from Oklahoma City. Then Dave called from Austin, Texas. Cherry Gold, best-selling butter here in Austin, Joe. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Perfectly placed in all the stores, yeah. Great job. Price-wise? Expensive, but worth it. Is it double? Like where Maya is in Oklahoma, it's double the price of the American. At least double oh, yeah. the price. Like, yeah, I think like a, uh, like the block of it's like $4.20. That's for a very small block, is it? Two sticks is much. That would be the small block. And then the, and then the spreadable stuff would be up around four fifty. And is it is it widely available in Austin, Texas? Oh yeah, like the big supermarket here is HEB. It'd be it'd be really well placed, and there'd be like four rows of it. And is there? Are you familiar with this round with the New Zealanders that we've declared? No, I was just listening. To, I, I listen to you every day now, and I was just listening. Yeah, no, to we've declared. Uh, it's, apparently, it's one of the reasons why Jacinda Ahern uh, resigned or Arden resigned, and that is because <laughs> we're about to declare war in New Zealand over a pound of butter. Well, Kerry, Kerry Gold, yeah, Kerry, COVID didn't get her. Kerry Gold got her, huh? <laughs> the end. What are you doing over there, Dave? I work in sales, Joe. I've been here about 15 years. Right, and you're well settled, obviously. Oh, yeah, well settled, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well settled and, indeed. And I mentioned earlier, people, uh, visitors from the States or relatives from the States who come home, they're now bringing back Kerry Gold in their suitcases. Oh, yeah, I well believe it, yeah. Because Absolutely. Because you can get it in tubs as well as as this silver foil packaging. Any other Irish? Yeah, yeah. Any other Irish products available in supermarkets? Oh, should we get it all? We get bachelor beans. We get uh, we get the mushy peas. We get uh, we recently getting the British bacon now. We're getting the rashers now as well. So we can get pretty much everything, you know. Okay, good stuff. Good stuff. And did you know that Donald Trump put a fifty million dollar levy on Kerry Gold every year? Uh, she put everything, he put stuff on everything, Joe. Put sure stuff is. on everything. That's Dave on the live line with Joe Duffy. And back to that conversation between Ryan Tupperty and film producer Todd Komernicki when Ryan asked Todd about being a producer on the film Elf. 
Let me ask you about Elf uh, on the basis that it is one of my all-time favourites and it's tied up also with, you know, the fact that I watch it with my daughters every Christmas and it's really, it's we're, it's it's one of those beautiful, and we love the soundtrack and we love Louis Prima's Penny from Heaven and we love him picking the chewing gum up off the subway rail. We <laughs> love much it. of that chewing gum I chewed, by the way. Did you? Yeah, when we were shooting that scene, they just gave uh, the producers a bunch of gum and we're chomping about 30 pieces of gum <laughs> and then we stuck it on that, well, we cleaned the subway railing. Oh, I was wondering. But he still went all in. I mean, it was our gum. We had chewed it. He didn't chew it. Oh, but that's because he's that kind of guy, isn't he? And, and uh, fearless. Will is fearless. Well, he's. It's just he seems to be happy to to make a mockery of it all and himself. When he runs into the coffee shop, you know, world's best coffee, and the lads behind him. I saw that's that's the, the innocence of it is just beautiful. Well, it's difficult. I just realized again in making this movie, you rely so much in a movie on these little moments with extras. Yeah. And you're you're not auditioning them. They show up on the day. They're cast through a different office. And it's easy to have a scene fall flat, but that greatest coffee in the world scene <laughs> really leans on the extras does, who you've not seen in any other film, because but you adore in this scene. This is it. They're dead behind the eyes. They're looking at him saying, call the call the infirmary or the, the asylum because we've got one. Um, how much fun was that film to make? Or was it a chore that just looks beautiful? It was not a chore. It was a lot of fun sitting with Bob Newhart, Papa Elf. He had all the stories. He he was the extrovert. Will is the kind of comedian that's a little more quiet, but then he says two things at a dinner party and they're the best things you've heard in a year and a half. So, You know what? I call, I've got a friends like that. There's Tommy Guns and Snipers. Right. So I'd be a bit of a Tommy Gun. Please, somebody laugh. And then, and then another pal would come out and just... And he'd take the whole room out with laughter from one comment after an hour and a half. That's Will. That's Will Ferrell. Okay. That's Will. And Jimmy Kahn, who we just lost. Sadly, oh, yeah. He, if we weren't rolling, was telling a long, elaborate story about Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. So everything that came out of his mouth, people would just come around and they'd hair and makeup would be like, uh, I think we need to do final checks. Like, no, we're good. Everyone's hair is fine. They just wanted to be around Jimmy and yeah. hearing the stories. Wow. Just, just sitting at like fireside tales with... 100% with all these great actors. And when... Um, when uh, James Caan, as you describe him in the film, he's he's the birth father, of course, of Buddy the Elf, uh, and he looks at the photograph of the woman who is, of course, the mother of, the birth mother of Elf, who is no longer with us, Susan Wells. Um, tell me about that photograph. Well, I'm married to the mother of Buddy the Elf. Tell me, t- explain that completely and clearly to us, please. So Jane Bradbury, Ireland's own, happens to be, by the grace of God, my spouse. And she... Is the photo in the photograph? She's the one in the photograph. She's the mom of Buddy the Elf when he comes looking for his dad. Yes, the singularly the best boast I've ever heard uh, since I've sat in this chair. And is that Jane? That's Jane outside. I certainly uh, hope so, she hasn't left yet. Uh, Depends on word, wordplay is not her favorite. Would, would, would she? Would she <laughs> care to join? Am I putting her on the spot? Would she mind? I'd love to meet her. I'd love her to come in. Okay, great. That'd be great. We got. Good morning. Good nice morning. to meet you. Nice to meet you. Sorry, I'm off microphone. No, that's okay. Do you want to go here? Yeah, t- this is Jane Bradbury, who's married to Tom, uh, to Todd, rather, uh, Comer Nikki, uh, not Nikki, uh, our guest this morning. Welcome. Thank you very so much. So you were born and bred where? In Athai, County Kildare, and I lived in Ireland till I was 19, and then I migrated. To where? So first of all, I. Um, I started modeling when I entered, my sister entered me in this Ford supermodel competition 
uh, when I was 19 and I won the competition representing Ireland. Yes. Right. Yes. And Good man, Todd. The trip was a winner free trip to Orlando, Florida. So yeah. I was like, oh, that sounds lovely. <laughs> so my sister took pictures and just like old camera and put it into the car- pharmacy to get developed. And there was loads of professional models. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to win this. And then I won. So well, of course you I did. headed off. Can we to... tell the story about your family arriving late to the event? No. Yeah, oh, yeah. come That's on. The I have best. To tell you. You're in Ireland now. It's okay. You're among friends. Safe space. So she's at this competition. She wins, but her family arrives late. And she's walking out and she says, oh, yeah, I, I won. And nobody believed her. <laughs> no, you, you did not. Yeah. 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 They were like, no, you did The most yeah. Irish response. You exactly. know, anywhere else is like, yeah, you did this. Go yeah, for doing exactly. How would you shut up? What are you talking about? You yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you spent some time in Paris, didn't you? About three, yeah. three or four years in Paris, yes. which from what I understand was lovely, but then got really boring. Yeah. And, uh, kind well, of... I wasn't working in Paris and you'd spend the day. This was before the Internet. You'd spend like nine hours walking around. All of Paris, tracing upstairs, yeah. showing your portfolio. They go, no, thank you. And, you know, got disheartening after a while. I had been to French Vogue about like a million times. They're like, you're here again. <laughs> Todd, we can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. We've been, <laughs> myself and Todd. Uh, bonjour. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I finally did end up working for French Vogue after. Um, but I got a chance to go to New York and I was like, yes. And then, you know, I was just totally blown away by New York because, yeah. you know, Monday to Sunday, you're out every night. Yeah. Everyone spoke English. I started to work straight away. And uh, and then I fell in love with New York for about 20 years. And Ryan asked Jane and Todd about the start of the relationship. When you met at an audition, you you didn't fall in love at no, all. I mean, that's what I think no. is real. What I love about your story no. is that it was just yeah, yeah. It was all obviously good, but you, you must have known. Come on, Todd. There was must be something somewhere in you that said she's just not like anyone else. No, the best the best way to put it this this describes Jane perfectly. So we had become friends, and I thought we were out on a date. And, um, <laughs> you thought. Yeah, yeah, I thought. Exactly. Well, yeah. You thought. I thought. I was, I was misinformed. <laughs> By himself. Well, I was going to say, sorry, Todd. But the, the genius of who Jane is, yeah. and I, I think this is something quite Irish too, is that she's so fully who she is all the time. Mm. She is without guile. You get Jane that she's not pulling a trick. She's not shaping things. She's not pitching you something. She's just Jane. So when I asked her if I could kiss her on that given night, she roured laughing. She leaned all the oh way back God. on How her bar stool. How are you guys still together? And this is 1998. <laughs> and she just laughed so hard with that great, wonderful, horsey laugh. And then she said, I don't want to kiss you. <laughs> We're friends. And with any other person, of course, I would have been the squash grape at the bottom of the boot. <laughs> but with Jane, because who Jane is, we wound up talking for another hour. And it, it actually was the bedrock of a great friendship. And it's always the woman's decision. So months down the road, when she had come to the thought that maybe it could be her and I. We call that her senses. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Huh? No. no, I'm joking. And it was, and, you know, she knocked on my door. Wow. And so luckily enough, um, I said yes. How old are your children? 
13 and 10. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. So, you guys, I love you guys. You're a great oh. company. I, I had a feeling because when I heard about your movie, I said, okay, I'd love to meet these guys. And then um, we were talking about maybe going down to Limerick to make it happen. Oh, yeah. And then you, we heard that you were happy to come to see us here in Dublin. Um, so it's worked out. But you've not only matched my expectations, you've exceeded oh. them. We need I to just, hang out sometime. Oh, thank you. Right we after the show. I, I, I wish. I, I'm fine. If I wasn't working tonight, I swear to God, we could just keep <laughs> Go going. Go on. Yeah. The crew was amazing in Ireland because really? we shot half of it in Belgium and then the other, you know, quarter in Ireland. And the troops were just incredible. And did you say, was it your suggestion to Todd to yes. film in Ireland? Yes. Well done, Jane. Yeah, I know. God, good on and you. And then the Limerick County Council got us down and was selling everything. They yeah. were like, come to Limerick. and Well, you know, I get to meet some great actors uh, on the, the TV show that I do yeah. uh, regularly. And they always say what you just said about the Irish crews yeah. uh, at, at every level. You mentioned hair and makeup oh. earlier on, but also cameras and, and every bit of it. They said they're a pleasure to work with they don't mess around no messing and there's humour on set as well which is great okay loads of text but just very quickly um, uh, delighted to hear that Todd and Jane are with you my brother and I had a bar in the London Terrace building in Chelsea oh, so New funny. York Todd and Jane used to come and see us and they were without doubt two of the nicest people we would meet oh. every week I've now moved home and I live close to the Bradbury's Cafe Jane's oh, family yeah. in Kildare it's the Heinz and Brothers this is the Heinz oh, Brothers they just said so welcome to Ireland Todd this is how it works well, listen I got full body chills because here, here's what happened when I auditioned Jane it was her first movie audition in her life and I wasn't quite sure if she was going to have the experience I needed for that role. So yeah. we had our first ever one-on-one -on -one meeting was at Heinz Brothers. And crazy? so we go full circle uh, in which to uh, end our conversation this morning. Uh, so Todd Kamarniki, Nikki, you are um, responsible for this film that we're all going to go and see. You'll have to have a good old premiere here so we can go on. Oh, 100%. Yes. Jane Bradbury and Todd Kamarniki from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, Colly Ennis was talking about foxes in mating season. Yeah, it's romance season in the fox world. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot of amorous males wandering around uh, looking for, for mates and uh, marking territories and doing all that kind of carry on at this time of year. And it's uh, quite vocal as well. So right from December right into January, this kind of behaviour will be very typical of the foxes around, especially in urban areas will be hearing a lot of ruckus. So the males are roaming, is that what happens? Yeah, yeah. And that's why you tend to see a lot of foxes being killed on the roads at this time of year as well. You get it at this around the wintertime when the males are, are roaming around looking for females and then you'll get it at the end of the summer when the younger foxes are dispersing away from their mothers. Yeah, they're getting a bit brave though. I saw one and now he looked like a male because he was a good chunky fella. He was sitting on the footpath along a main road during the day having a good old scratch for himself before jumping into the into the ditch. Are they getting a bit cheekier with when they come out? They certainly are. Urban foxes are really, really becoming habitualised to people being around and realising that people kind of just aren't interested in them or the most they'll do is pull out a mobile phone and start recording them. So um, they've kind of realised that we're not a threat. And if anything, they've kind of copped onto the fact that we're a really good potential source of food. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're very used to us and, and they don't seem to be bothered by us at all in urban areas anyway. So the breeding season happens once a year. So we're talking from December to February. How long is the gestation yeah. period then? When are we going to see the babies? 
About 58 days. Um, so you'll see them around March uh, and then on, on, well, you won't see them, but they'll be born then. And then it's kind of like the heads start appearing into the summer out of their den or their set. And it's uh, kind of uh, adventuring out then over the summer months before dispersing or staying with the parents depending on how much food is around the area for them. Collie, we have uh, messages coming in on this. I saw two foxes okay. <laughs> in our hay barn yesterday morning. The hay barn is 50 metres from our house and this listener wants to know is it normal for them to come so close to our home? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we've I've seen videos of foxes that live under people's garden sheds in tiny little poster stamps of gardens, you know. So um, even in Trinity College in here, we have them living under uh, outbuildings that are right beside residents. And we've kind of built them now a purpose-built fox den. And hopefully they're going to take up residence and that's right beside our new wildlife pond. But they're well used to living beside people and it doesn't bother them at all. Doesn't seem to. Um, This one, here's a lovely story. We have a fox visiting our house every night for the last week. What joy it brings. Thanks to the Ukrainian boy, Alex, who's staying with us and spotted it. We live in the countryside and we feed it scraps of meat and bread, etc. And this listener wants to know, should we feed this fox all year round? So there's uh, two schools of thought on, on feeding foxes. I think that uh, some people say do it and some people say don't. I think the, the most practical thing to do is to, if, if you are to look after your local foxes, I don't see any harm in it, but just don't get them too depending dependent on you, if that makes sense. So you give them a little bit of food that replicates their own sort of natural diet, eggs, bits of meat, uh, you can even feed them kibble, cat food, stuff like that. Stuff that will replicate them, not not sweets and chocolates and and, and mm. the 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 good stuff we like. Um, but that that kind of stuff, and just feed them little and off and often, and that means they don't become completely dependent on you, and they'll still engage in their wild behaviour. Yeah, because they're expert hunters, aren't they, foxes? Fantastic, unbelievable hunters. I mean, like the the urban foxes around Dublin was very interesting during lockdown. They completely switched back into being hunters because there was nothing to scavenge around during those months when people weren't in the city centre. And they completely switched overnight and just started killing all the pigeons that were around. It was incredible to watch um, from a naturalist point of view. Mm -hmm. Some of them, I said I saw the the fox scratching himself, but some of them look a bit mangy where the fur is missing. Is the Um, policy not to intervene if you see that? Generally, yeah, but, uh, you know, um, we've intervened in here in the college to save some of our foxes that have had mange. and that's, you know, it, it, it's, it's awful to see any animals suffer. Callie Ennis from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.